Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law and its implications on our relationships, our markets, and our futures. I'm Siobhan. I'm Bianca. And we'll be hosting you in this series. Today, we're really honoured to be speaking with Professor Martha Minot on her extensive scholarship on the role that forgiveness can and should play in the law. Professor Minot is the 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University. She has taught at Harvard Law School since 1981 and served as its dean between 2009 and 2017. An expert in human rights and advocacy for members of racial and religious minorities, and for women, children, and persons with disabilities, she also writes and teaches about ethnic and religious conflict and the role of forgiveness in the law, among many other topics. Professor Minow, welcome to our podcast and thank you for being here with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let's start off our discussion with a rather foundational question. Why do you argue for a jurisprudence of forgiveness? I've been teaching actually for 40 years, which is surprising to me. But another surprise I had was thinking about during all that time and talking with my colleagues, how seldom we discuss the places in legal systems where discretion can be exercised to forgive, meaning to let go of justified grievance, even though we have all kinds of techniques in the law for doing so ranging from clemency and pardons to bankruptcy law. So I decided that actually we need to develop a conscious approach to the use of those tools, not only because they're available and they're being used willy-nilly, but also because there are risks that they are used in ways that amplify or exacerbate existing biases or other kinds of unfairness in society. I'm struck by your definition of forgiveness, which is centered on victim agency. You've written that to forgive is not an obligation, it is a choice held at the discretion of those who are harmed. This seems rather different from religious traditions which may frame forgiveness instead as an unconditional moral imperative. How do you envision forgiveness to operate legally as opposed to within these moral or religious contexts? Well, as you say, it is very striking to review religious and moral and social traditions across civilizations through time. And they all include some form of encouragement of interpersonal forgiveness. I've also been struck that studies of large mammals, large apes, uh, actually uh, have led to the conclusion that they engage in forgiveness rituals, even after conflict, a kind of return to uh, a kind of reconciliation, stroking, and so forth. So there seems to be something in just our organisms where forgiveness, letting go of the emotions that are attached to a sense of being wronged, uh, are, are uh, in need of cultivation and management. Uh, it is true that there are differences within religious traditions. There are some religious traditions, some versions of Christianity in particular, that call for emulating a divine forgiveness that is unconditional. 
But there are other Christian traditions and other traditions and other religions and philosophies that quite to the contrary, key forgiveness to a reciprocal exchange, following uh, repentance, uh, taking responsibility, uh, reparations and other kinds of steps. So I really was looking for the common denominator uh, and not uh, going to a version that is either unconditional or very rigorous in what is required in exchange. Um, one of the important uh, distinctions that really took me a long time to realize is the difference between interpersonal forgiveness which is letting go of a sense of outrage or a justified resentment after being wronged on the one hand, and the exercise of forgiveness by institutions, by law, by governments. Uh, and for the latter, it's less about emotion and it's more about finding mechanisms for uh, uh, avoiding, for suspending, for relenting on what would be otherwise um, sanctions. Uh, and it's really the second that I'm arguing for. In, when I talk about interpersonal forgiveness and the emphasis on choice, that's really coming out of my work in post-conflict situations, South Africa being one of the prime examples where the expectation that victims of apartheid violence would forgive actually was experienced by many of them as a new kind of uh, offense, uh, a new kind of, uh, of harm. And I'm trying to avoid that. That's where this idea of choice comes in. This speaks to the concern that women minorities are, as you mentioned, victims in post-conflict societies, that they would be or have historically been expected to forgive more than others. It's a tall order, but how can the law ensure that tools of forgiveness will not be used to replicate these inequities? Well, it is uh, so pervasive. Uh, while forgiveness is a resource and it indeed is a kind of power, even a power for the relatively powerless to give it, but it's not a power if it's obligated, if it's required. It's a power if there's a choice to not give it. Um, and I do think it's very striking that often less powerful individuals, groups, are more commonly expected to forgive, to say, beg pardon, excuse me, uh, and to uh, give forgiveness more willingly. Um, I, I do think there's uh, inequities there, and therefore in encouraging uh, more consistent use uh, by legal systems of techniques like uh, pardon, like clemency, like uh, suspending a, a punishment, that it's critical to do so with guidelines that guard against uh, replicating the patterns of power and disadvantage that already exist in society. You've also written that many of these tools of forgiveness, like clemency, like pardons, are already built into the American legal system, um, but the issue is that they're being underutilized. Could you expand on what these tools are and what you think a more forgiving legal system would look like? The 
the example of criminal uh, law comes to mind very readily because the United States right now is the most incarcerating society in the history of the planet. We have swung so far towards the punitive side that a, a major re a correction is required. And it does remind me of the uh, tradition of Jubilee in the Bible, the Old Testament, that at times a society needs a reset, needs to restart its legal system, whether it's criminal law or debt uh, management. And it's uh, actually a phenomenon that was followed in other uh, ancient civilizations uh, as well. Um, I think that the United States needs a, a, a reset on criminal law. Uh, and there are some places that are already uh, exploring this, uh, uh, individual states like California, uh, that are using uh, a kind of commutation uh, device or an expungement device. These are ways to either uh, uh, halt a, a criminal sentence or to erase a criminal record. Um, and at the moment, in most places, this is done one by one by one, uh, but there could be more group-based, uh, categorical-based. When President Obama was president, he, for example, uh, used the pardon power to, uh, to relieve from further punishment and blame people who were punished under laws that had subsequently been changed to be less onerous. And yet the previous convictions were still in place. So uh, en masse, he applied the pardon power to those individuals. They were all drug crimes, as I recall. Um, I think that those are devices that can be used and should be used and should be facilitated. And uh, not just one by one, but in some instances where there's categorical decisions. Uh, bankruptcy is another example. Uh, the United States Constitution actually authorized uh, the creation of a national bankruptcy statute. And from the beginning of the country, there has been one. Interestingly, it's been associated with the high levels of innovation uh, in the United States because risk taking in business is protected uh, by the possibility of declaring bankruptcy. You know, it's commonly said in Silicon Valley, if a new, if a uh, an entrepreneur has not gone bankrupt once or not failed once, uh, then they're not trying hard enough and don't deserve investment. Um, be that as it may, the bankruptcy law is uh, modified over time by the Congress. And the current law has some elements that I think really ought to be changed. It excludes, for example, student loans. Uh, and there are treatments of other aspects of consumer debt that I think are uh, to the benefit of the creditors and missing uh, the value of the bankruptcy tool, and that should be revised. Those are examples, but I'm also interested in this comparison between the civil and the criminal side. So in bankruptcy, we have a metaphor of a fresh start that people uh, should be able, uh, if they cannot pay their debts to start over, they'll have to climb their way up again to a good credit rating, but they will no longer face uh, dunning uh, demands by creditors and have to uh, abandon all of their belongings and maybe even end up in jail. That's not uh, what's required. 
if you if you declare bankruptcy, you are absolved of those uh, debts. And notice these words, absolution, forgiveness, they're used in the uh, uh, debt side the same way that they are in the criminal side. And yet when we turn to criminal law, at least in the United States, there's very little of this sense of a fresh start. Many, many states have laws that are can be grouped under the phrase collateral consequences of crime, where someone who's already served their time, their sentence is complete, nonetheless faces further social uh, and legal punishments. For example, in many states, individuals who are convicted of a felony are not allowed to vote ever again. Or uh, in some places, they're not allowed to seek a license to engage in certain kinds of occupations. In some places, they're not allowed to obtain public benefits, for example, subsidized housing. Those collateral consequences of crime are the opposite of a fresh start. And I think there's much to be learned by this comparison between the civil side and the criminal. What explains this disparity between the stigma against financial bankruptcy as opposed to criminal records? I think it's related to the same reasons that this country has swung so far over to the punitive side on uh, criminal law. And there are interesting analyses about why that is, uh, you know, besides some kind of moralistic view, there are much more um, uh, practical elements, such as prosecutors in the United States um, at the state level are uh, widely uh, selected by election and campaigning on the platform of tough on crime has proved more successful in the United States than campaigning on the platform of forgiveness. Although we've seen a recent change in the development of uh, a few cities that have elected what are called progressive prosecutors. Nonetheless, the reliance on elections, even on uh, election advertising, I think has tilted uh, towards this uh, more emotional uh, punitive approach in the criminal side. Um, beyond that, uh, I, I think it's a really important question to try to figure out why there's that disparity. And what I uh, actually have learned from all my years as a law teacher is that comparison is an instructive method of learning. So if we just maybe we don't know why the civil and the criminal are different, but it makes us think that if we're able to give people a fresh start on the civil side, why can't we do that on the criminal side? You argue that the U.S. legal system could learn to be more forgiving of juvenile offenders, drawing a contrast with international law's treatment of child soldiers. How should forgiveness work in such cases? Well, yes, here's another one of these juxtapositions or comparisons that I found very telling. Uh, the recruitment or even capturing of children uh, in war or conflict uh, regions is widespread. It's happened throughout history. Unfortunately, it continues in some parts of the world. And the treatment then of child soldiers has uh, drawn the attention of the international community, the international human rights community in particular, Uh, And whether by law or by practice, uh, our uh, international criminal processes have exempted 
people who committed crimes as children for the most part on the view that they either didn't know what they were doing or they are correctable or or they are subject to rehabilitation. Uh, In any case, they should have the chance to start over. Indeed, in many parts of the humanitarian aid, there is a risk of more aid to former child soldiers than people who did not follow that path. Uh, And some resentment occurs when there are schooling opportunities and other kinds of resources given to former child soldiers and not to those who stayed uh, with their families. Uh, Be that as it may, the general international uh, law and international humanitarian response to child soldiers has been one of forgiveness and compassion. And that's so striking in its contrast with the treatment of juvenile offenders in the United States. This is ironic because the United States was the place that innovated a different treatment of juveniles in the law. Uh, In 1899, Jane Addams uh, proposed the first criminal, uh, first uh, juvenile court in Chicago, Illinois. And within about 10 years, every state had followed this idea that young people should not be treated the same as adults and should indeed have their own separate legal system and one that is more uh, forgiving and more organized with uh, social services and educational opportunities and chances to uh, choose a different kind of life, follow a different path. But from that beginning, uh, a very different pattern has occurred in the intervening 120 years in the United States. And really starting in the 1980s, a kind of uh, led by some academics, an attitude that there is a class of young people who are super predators, who are simply dangerous, who cannot be corrected, um, fed uh, escalating sanctions and punishment for juveniles and has led to not only increased sanctions, but in many cases, transfer of the cases of juveniles to adult courts, the housing of uh, juveniles uh, in the same facilities with convicted adults. Um, It's a much more uh, unforgiving uh, time when it comes to juvenile offenses in the United States. And again, the juxtaposition with child soldiers outside the United States is so very, very striking. Uh, And it seems to me we could learn from what's uh, been developed internationally and the investment in educational programs, social services. Uh, In both contexts, I think one very important element is uh, helping young people come to forgive themselves. Um, many uh, actually developed their own moral sensibility while they were engaging in uh, horrible activities and have a lot of blame, uh, a lot of self-blame, a lot of uh, uh, depression. Uh, and that leads often to uh, addiction and to self-medication. Um, In the child soldier context, that's been recognized as a phenomenon that deserves attention, treatment, and care. And I think the same should be true when we talk about domestic uh, law. Professor Mino, you've had extensive experience on the ground um, serving on the Independent International Commission on Kosovo, and you also helped to launch Imagine Coexistence, a UNHCR program that promotes peaceful development in post-conflict societies. So from your experience on the ground, how can restorative justice initiatives 
sensitively cultivate public buy-in for forgiveness, particularly in these sensitive post-conflict contexts? You know, I think one of the lessons of the 20th century is how conflicts are handled after they are sensibly over uh, will be an important uh, signal to whether or not conflicts return. Uh, you mentioned Kosovo in the area of the former Yugoslavia. Uh, there have been recurrences of uh, tribal uh, nationalistic uh, disagreements uh, erupting into violence periodically over literally hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and uh, how do we break those patterns, those cycles of violence? Um, I think uh, it's a tall order to ask people to forgive, to absolutely uh, embrace uh, their enemies, uh, particularly after there has been uh, violence, the killing of a loved one. But I think there are uh, uh, elements that are short of that that could help break those cycles of violence. Uh, for example, working on coexistence. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees uh, following the Kosovo crisis. And that's what we focused on, how to promote coexistence, which in some instances might be as basic as uh, giving uh, access to a shared resource like a threshing machine uh, on a schedule that allows uh, Serbs and Kosovars uh, different times to use it so they don't have to actually clash with each other. Or it might be more ambitious, like a women's center that's open to women from different parts of the community uh, who find some commonality. Um, one of the steps that we found was that actually having instruction in how to have a meeting, how to run a meeting, how to sit in a meeting with people with whom you have some sense of animosity because of their identity and the group to which they belong, that that was an important step as well. So uh, reconciliation or forgiveness may be too tall in order, but coexistence uh, is something to work for, and I think it can, uh, it can be achieved. So we've spoken rather extensively on when the law should forgive. My question is, when should the law not forgive? Um, is there any case in which you would say that the law should not allow a victim to forgive his or her perpetrator, even if they choose to? Well, those are two very different questions. And I really do think it's important to distinguish interpersonal forgiveness from the legal systems forgiveness. And I believe that the interpersonal has to be left to the individual uh, without pressure, without expectation. Um, and it, it really should be separated entirely. An individual who forgives uh, a perpetrator of a terrible crime, uh, killing a loved one or uh, committing rape, uh, that victim, that survivor should have the authority to be able to decide whether or not to forgive, which in my view is irrelevant to whether the legal system proceeds because others are offended, others are jeopardized. Uh, and the legal system, the government represents all of the people and a decision to be made quite separately about whether to prosecute and if so, uh, what kind of sentence to seek and uh, how punitive to be, that represents the public duty. 
Um, when should the government choose to forgive? In the criminal context, for example, we have a very uh, uh, powerful and uh, difficult case before us in the United States right now. The man who was convicted of assassinating Robert F. Kennedy, who was a candidate to be president of the United States, I was uh, inspired by him uh, in my generation. He was a hero. And uh, the loss of, of uh, his uh, life was, of course, a great, great uh, tragedy for those who knew him and loved him. But for the country, it was the loss potentially of a different path um, for, for the entire country uh, because he was against war and he was for remedying economic inequality, all kinds of things that are still issues in this country. Well, the man convicted of his murder is up for parole. Uh, and I think it's now the 19th application that he's had and a panel just recommended that he should be let out of jail. Uh, and it has divided the surviving family members. At least one uh, has argued that he should be let out um, because there's mass incarceration. Uh, many others have said he should not uh, because he did something so very terrible that was not just about the family, but about the uh, entire community. Um, and my own view about that is uh, that uh, there might be a hard case before us, but this one is not hard. This man, Sirhan Sirhan, has never accepted responsibility for what he did. He shows no contrition. He has uh, never uh, acknowledged that he did uh, wrong. Uh, he only says it's regrettable that Robert Kennedy died. Um, that is not a case, in my view, for uh, parole. Um, more seriously, even though than that, is when we had in the office of the president uh, an individual, Donald Trump, who abused his powers, who manipulated the facts, who tried to disrupt the orderly transition of power in the election. I think those are all unforgivable acts. Uh, and they are acts that, that run in violation of the principles that he swore to pay allegiance to when he took his oath of office. Uh, his own exercise of the pardon power given to the executive, uh, in many instances, uh, uh, used uh, to reward supporters uh, of his own campaign or of his businesses, um, or otherwise for selfish gain. Uh, in one instance, in my view, particularly unforgivable, and I know that's ironic to say that the use of the pardon power was itself unforgivable. Uh, but in one instance, he the very first pardon that he gave was to a sheriff um, who had been convicted by the criminal law of violating the civil rights of individuals in the way that he um, uh, abused them and uh, housed them. Uh, and uh, he then violated the court sanction, was held in contempt. And that is what President Trump forgave him for. And I think that is unforgivable. Here's a man who was found to have violated the law and to thumb his nose at the fundamental uh, fairness and treatment of the law. Uh, and now we have a president who's thumbing his nose at the legal system. I think that's an unforgivable exercise of pardon power. Professor Minow, that was all the questions that we had for you. 
Is there anything else you would like to add to a conversation that we haven't already touched on? Well, thanks. I'll just say uh, in closing, uh, just two thoughts. One is that interpersonal forgiveness is a, a superpower that each of us have. Uh, and uh, there's now an explosion of health-related studies that show that those who forgive are happier, have lower blood pressure, live longer. Uh, so it's worth thinking about cultivating that as a capacity, but not giving up on a sense of right and wrong and, uh, and, and holding judgments. It's just about whether one can let go of the resentments. That's the first comment. For the, for the law and for public policy, um, I do think that there are lessons to be learned, particularly looking across societies. Uh, you just mentioned, uh, and I do think this is telling, that in some societies, the pardon power is not given 100% with no checks to one person. Uh, and that is instructive. Uh, in, in South Africa, for example, it's subject to judicial review. In some uh, countries, there's a panel uh, of elected officials uh, that decide it. In any case, I think that looking across the world, looking across time, looking across history, at the development of institutional practices of forgiveness, I think can instruct us all about ways to do it better now. Thank you very much, Professor Minow, for this really enlightening discussion on forgiveness in the law. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your interest. That was Professor Martha Minow on forgiveness in the law. For more interesting legal discussions and writings, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications. Once again, thank you for joining us on this episode.